that we may indeed be joined together in unity of spirit and of the apostles' and prophets' teachings, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to our great God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you were here last week, or even if you weren't, Canon Bales, in his homily, suggested that we're in the midst of a mini-series on the letter to the Romans. Actually, it's a mini-series on the theme of Exodus in the letter to the Romans. That theme goes all the way back to a foreshadowing in chapter 3 of the letter in which Paul says that God has accomplished an extraordinary redemption, which means rescue, purchase, liberation through Christ, the same word that's used in Exodus about the paschal lamb that is set forth so the angel of death would pass over God's children. God put forward Christ as a sacrifice, conquering our enemy, ending our condemnation, and bearing the consequences of our guilt and shame. And so God in Christ has come near to us and befriended us. We're not alone any longer. Then in chapter 4, Paul points us to, Ab us to Abraham's example. To attain the rescue, all we have to do, in fact, all we can do is believe. Say yes. Open the empty hands of faith and receive. Then in chapter 5 at the beginning, Paul gets down to business. And he overtures his Exodus theme by reminding us that the Exodus journey that began with the Passover sacrifice has brought justification, peace with God, access to Him. And our journey will take us through a wilderness, a tribulation that will only make us stronger. That is, it will sanctify us. And finally, that journey to the promised land will end in glory. Then Paul does an interlude at the end of chapter 5, a passage that we read during Lent, by taking us back to Adam and the fall in the garden. Paul wants us to know that what God is fixing through Christ is not just Israel's problem, not just our problem, yours and mine, but it's the whole world's. What God is up to in Jesus Christ is not a narrow, small, provincial thing. It's everybody's thing. And then we got to the beginning of chapter 6 last week, and as Canon Bale so well reminded us, just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, we have gone through the waters of baptism. Now, sin has been reined in. And in advance of sin's final removal, we are able to resist its power. Which brings us to our passage, the tail end of chapter 6, where we consider choices in the wilderness. But before we get to them, looking ahead at chapter 7, next week and the following, there's the challenge of the law. You remember it was in the wilderness that God gave Israel the law. And although the law was intended to show God's character, the law winds up showing us just how far we actually are from his design, which sets up for the grand finale in chapter 8. As God's glory cloud, the Shekinah that moved with the camp 
in front of the camp, alongside the camp, just as God's glory cloud did finally get Israel to the promised land, so now, eventually, the Holy Spirit, who dwells not just alongside in front of the camp, but dwells in us, among us, the Holy Spirit will finally bring us home and to the glory that our loving Father has for us. But here we are. We're still back at the tail end of chapter 6. We're in the wilderness. Between the e Egypt of our oppression and the promised land of our final liberation. And Paul, I think, wants us to understand four things vital to surviving life in the wilderness. First, we need to understand there's peril in the wilderness. Egypt oppressed in its way, the wilderness oppresses in its own way. The wilderness is a dangerous place, and it brings with it a unique temptation. Hey, we're no longer under law. We're under grace. So free from Egypt, now we can do whatever we want, right? Well, wrong. Obedience to the command to follow is no less necessary after the baptismal waters as it was before the baptismal waters. Here's where you cue Bob Dylan. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Fact is, the wilderness is not someplace you can just go and hang out. Wander around and make things up as you go. Without a wise plan good guidance, provision, and protection, the wilderness is where you'll die of heat, of hunger, of thirst, of predators. Uh, when I was five years old, one day I decided to escape the oppressiveness of home life. My father at the time was county school principal in Citrus County. So we were living in Inverness. Now, I don't recall exactly why I felt my parents' tender care to be so suffocating at the time, but I did. Regardless, I decided at the tender age of five to strike out on my own. I packed up a few belongings and enlisted my beagle mix dog named Tuffy. I loaded them onto my little red wagon and headed out on either US 41 or State Road 44. Don't remember which. But whichever one it was, I do remember it was quite busy and dangerous beyond my five-year-old comprehension. And that's where my dad found me in his Studebaker. My dad understood what I didn't. There's peril in the wilderness. This, week, this weekend, as I know you know, we celebrate our national independence. But you know, on the far side of 1776 and a truly perilous campaign for freedom, 
there were the even more perilous 1780s and 1790s. You realize, don't you, that this republic almost never came about? That's right. I'll take that amen. <laughs> there were serious, crippling challenges. You had an industrial north promoting mostly abolitionist meritocracy. And you had an agrarian south promoting a slave-based aristocracy, ironically, in the name of populism. You had, on the one hand, Thomas Jefferson's vision of individualism, and on the other hand, Alexander Hamilton's vision of centralism. At first, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison unite to defend the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, but then they become bitter enemies over whether to interpret that Constitution loosely, Hamilton, or strictly, Madison. And so there were serious questions. It took a couple of decades to work through. Do we go crawling back to England? Do we become 13 little nations? That the United States of America ever came together after the separation from Great Britain is almost enough to make you believe in miracles. You see, just getting your freedom is only the beginning of the journey. Because not only is there peril in the wilderness, but second, freedom is only to be found in a pattern of teaching, a pattern that's shared. And notice, notice the way Paul so elegantly expresses himself at the end of verse 17, where Paul points to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. There's a pattern of obedience that Paul saw himself introducing Roman Christians to, a received and shared wisdom that we're all called to embrace, submit to, learn from, and be formed by. Listen, I was raised in the church. Okay, it was Presbyterian. And by the way, the Presbyterians were a lot more interested in, in, in independence than the Anglicans were, by the way. I was raised in the church. But it wasn't until I was 18, a lonely freshman off in college, that it took. I trusted Christ when I realized that I was a prisoner of my pride, a victim of lusts I could not control, and as lonely as lonely could be. Now, foolishly, I thought just letting Christ in would, was all there was to it. It took time to realize that the mess inside was so much greater than I thought. And truth be told, I did some of my most prideful, lustful, and loneliness-begetting things after I trusted Christ, and you don't need the details. What I do want you to know is over time, over time, I had to learn what Dante learned. I, I know that reading Dante's Divine Comedy is in, way in the rearview mirror for, for many of us, but hopefully you had the wonderful opportunity to do that in a humanities class somewhere along the way, or you may want to, may be a first time read for you down the road. 
soon, I hope. One of the things that Dante learned is that baptism is a life. It's not just a one-time event, but it's the beginning of a journey of taking off and putting on. After Dante emerges from the inferno, he's covered with grime and soot, and he gets washed in the waters that surround the island on which he finds himself. That is, he's baptized, and the filth is washed away. He girds himself with a reed that he plucks from the water, and then he begins to climb a seven-tiered mountain that stands at the center of the island. As he climbs, he discovers that at each tier, he must lose one of the seven deadly sins. Pride, looking down on others. Envy, resenting what seems to put others ahead of you. Anger, whether it's rage or just that seething Sloth, not caring about, well, anything. Greed, whether it's about having the most things or the nicest things. Gluttony, whether it's eating massively or ever so discriminately. And lust, please don't make me define that for you. And then instead clothing himself with the innate character of Christ as expressed in the Beatitudes and the learned character of wiser believers. Humility, blessed are the poor. Empathy, blessed are those who mourn. Meekness, blessed are the meek. Zeal for all that is good, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Generosity toward the poor, blessed are the merciful. Solidarity with the suffering, blessed are the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Holiness of mind and body, blessed are the pure in heart. And then here, here, here's what happens at the end of the journey. At the end of his journey through this life, Dante is baptized twice more as he swims the river of forgetfulness of all that he used to be and the river of now a permanent goodness of mind. And then finally upon his entrance into heaven, Dante receives a crown and a mitre and is proclaimed master of yourself. Here's the provision I found in my post-conversion wilderness. Here's the reality that Canon Bales invited us to last week when he spoke of the end of sin's reign and the beginning of our resistance to sin in our baptism in anticipation of its final removal when Christ returns. Here's the journey I submit that all of us who have been touched with the baptismal waters share, as different as our particular paths may appear to be from the outside. And, friends, here's the journey 
that we are privileged to introduce William Brooks Roy to today. And I'm going to ask him to be patient for just another couple of minutes. Because three, not only is there this pattern we're called to follow, but it's an obedience that has to proceed from the heart. That's what Paul calls for in the middle of verse 17, an obedience of the heart. In, in the ancient liturgies, after you're baptized, you have eight days of teaching about what your baptism means. And then on that eighth day, you know what they do? They wash away those signs of baptism and anointing. Just wash them off. Because the symbols are supposed to become realities. What had happened to the outside of the body was supposed to take root within. So Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann puts it this way. The symbol is to become reality. The life itself is now to be the sacramental sign, the fulfillment of the gift. And here's a word about what that means for me in relationship to you. Listen. I'm less concerned with what you do than with who you are. I feel like my job is less to tell you what to do than to point to a way of being and make that way the way of life, of love and humility, of graciousness and giving and generosity of Jesus Christ himself to make it more inviting and attractive than the way of death and self-imprisonment. And here, especially in the Episcopal Church, we'll give you lots of space to mess up. Because we really believe that in the end, Paul's fourth point, there's a power that's at work within you to help you to figure it out and to get back on track when you get off. Look at the way that he starts verse 17. But thanks be to God. There is a power Paul believes and I believe that is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all that we can ask or imagine and that power is at work in you. Paul is often thought of as a bit of a grump, but he wasn't. I think that if you and I had known him, we would have seen a sort of a Gandalf or Dumbledore-like gleam in his eye because he knew that beyond the persuasiveness of his words and the example of his life, something stronger was at work. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that makes Jesus present even now, and especially, especially at the baptismal font, in the prayers, in the peace, at the table of the Lord. And among you, his saints dispersed in the world. And so, even if you can't believe that for yourself, I do. Which is why continually I pray for you, as Paul does here, Thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you have been entrusted, and that you, 
having become set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.